Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Ampere Amplified podcast. I'm joined here today by one of our interns here this summer. His name is Yash Kakulo, and he joins us from Georgia Tech, where he's studying computer engineering. So welcome on board, Shirash. Thank you so much for having me. This is honestly a very unique and exciting opportunity to represent Ampere at this forum. This is a perfect way to cap off a really good internship. So excited for the conversation ahead. Excellent. Also in the studio today is Michael Julier, one of Yash's mentors here this summer, who is a distinguished engineer in the architecture team here at Ampere. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. And so one of the things that we do here at Ampere is allow our interns to come into the studio and take the time to interview one of their mentors and take part in this communications activity. So we're going to get this started off, and I'm going to let Yash take it away. I'm interested in knowing about your role at Ampere. Maybe that's a good point to start. Could you talk about maybe what you do here, the technologies that you touch, the people you work with, uh, all of that stuff? Okay. My role, like just about everybody else in the architecture team, is uh, poorly defined, if at all. Okay. Um, it is defined as we're smart people. We need to figure out what is important to success or what is the most important thing we could be doing at the moment and go do that. Within the realm of something we're capable of doing or good at, so I don't go off and design address maps because mm -hmm. RJ is much better at that. Right. Okay. So I touch performance-related things. I touch... You know, what are the perf counters? What counters are missing? How can we use the counters to understand performance, to tune the silicon, and so on? So you said that an architect's role is generally poorly defined. Do you think, <laughs> you know, the perspectives that you have from maybe the previous roles that you've worked in, uh, so you've worked in software enablement, you've led large teams of software engineers, how do you think maybe those perspectives lend to the kind of work that you do now? So my degree was computer architecture, which is neither hardware nor software. I am only a software person because I'm currently sitting in an architecture team. If I'm sitting in a software team, I'm a hardware guy, which either says I'm mediocre at both or I'm not good at either or I'm really good at part, right? But what my background has mostly been is the ability to think about how the hardware is executing the software and what the software is asking of the hardware. All right. And then kind of doing a really poor job of simulating that in my head so that I can go like, oh, so the software is trying to do X and Clearly, from looking at the code, that's going to be core bound because look, it's you know the the footprint of the data is tiny, so I know it's going to fit in a cache, or it's probably going to fit in a cache, or oh dear God, it's huge, it'll never fit in the cache. That lets me think about where in the platform is this code kind of bottlenecked, which then helps me go do the rest of it. From the software side, I've been in a compiler team. I've been in a application engineering team. I've been in a system software team. I did a bunch of 
customer deep dives as part of an architecture team where we'd bring customers in, they'd bring in their code, we'd rip it apart with kind of the entire tool chain or the, the entire software stack of, of experts. And we just, you know, rip it apart and and look at it and understand that. So, you know, your average architect is going to be a lot more like, oh, I have this buffer that does this and feeds that buffer, or I have this algorithm trying to find something about some undefined instruction stream, which is really hard to understand what the heck the user is trying to accomplish. So go back to like, oh, I'm trying to search the entire known internet for anything that matches blah. Okay, well, mm. how do you break that down? And da -da -da -da, right. So would you say then the role of an architect, to be good at that role, you also sort of need to be comfortable bouncing between like different layers of abstraction. So you said you've worked in compilers before, a little bit in software, but you also understand the hardware. So absolutely, right. Uh, first, I would say the role of an architect shouldn't be defined, or the role of an architect is to uh, maximize the probability that a customer will find the greatest value from a particular product, where that product is a compromise of things that could have been done and customers who are considered targets for that product. You could also say that architects sit in like the grand central station between customers, end users, software developers, marketing even. Yeah. And on the other side, the designers and the firmware developers internal to the company that help craft the product. Right. So you've actively been participating with Jeff in understanding performance of traces and power and to some extent TCO, right? So you've been doing a whole bunch of businessy planning kind of things without ever thinking about what the heck is, how, what is the thing that's getting implemented underneath, right? It was just like somebody gave you a model and, or somebody gave you output from a model which you then used to try and evaluate the goodness of something. Um, so Jeff is a component of an architecture team, which is well removed from the hardware. There's other components like RJ and Matt, who know almost nothing about the business side. They're worried about the, oh, I've got address spaces, and what is this Chai protocol, and so on and so forth. And, but as a team, you need to be able to cover the entire space Mahesh was describing, right? And so no one person can understand the entire space well or deeply. Atik, by virtue of having to manage the team, is aware of everything going on and could dive deep but doesn't, right? So that's one reason you don't really want to define an architect is if you do, you will forget TCO, or you'll forget cost, or design for test, or, right, there, there's too much to really do a good job defining it. One of the things Optic tells us to do is to go off and do the right thing. 
What does that mean? How do you do the right thing? And a lot of times it comes from experience. And many of us have been in this industry for decades and have products under our belt. But then it lends itself to like choosing the right tools to use to debug or crafting the right message to the customer so that you can intelligently make them accept that we're not going to deliver a feature this year. <laughs> so one of the words that you use to describe what an architect does is compromise. And I guess you could also call that trade-offs, right? So that's a theme that sort of comes up often. Uh, Mahesh brought up experience. The kind of sense that I get being in the industry for a short while now that experience is a very important thing. How does experience lend into making these decisions of trade-off when it comes to performance, power, and even like smaller decisions, right? When you have like these small, let's say, micro-architectural features that go in, it isn't always obvious how one thing is going to affect the other thousands of features that go in, and they may interact in non-obvious ways. So it seems to me like those decisions have to come from experience, how do you sort of think about that problem? I think that experience is probably the biggest deterrent to making a good decision, contrary to what you were thinking, right? So for how big should this buffer be, I can take my experience and say, ah, but I need to understand how many units will I sell to customer blah because I've made this thing this size which may, meant I had to go make all these, right. And then you just get into paralysis of, oh, I need 48,000 pieces of data in order to understand how big should I make this buffer, right? Or you say, okay, well, the first order effect is if the buffer is bigger, I get better performance. If it's smaller, I get worse performance. Okay, but if I start making it too big, then I'm going to push timing closure or something, right? You can actually make lots of great, very important decisions with much less experience. It's really, do you have the experience and the breadth to make a good decision with the thing that's in front of you? Right. And, and so maybe sometimes that might be like, oh, I need to go talk to a design guy about how big can I actually make this buffer or what's the cost of making this buffer bigger. Right. You, you want to. The, the, the benefit of experience is in scoping the inputs you bring to the decision. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Would it be right to say then that the industry is sort of moving from making decisions maybe more intuitively to a point where we're far more data-driven. So we use, let's say, numbers and results and simulations to kind of like project where the performance is going to be and try to hit that far more than maybe what used to be historically true. I have is... an opinion on this. <laughs> <laughs> I remember talking to one of our mentors at Intel about this problem. And there seems to be this like back and forth between using too much intuition or using too much data. And at that time, our team, I feel, had gotten too mired in, the, in relying on the simulation 
and relying on the projection. And we would just do whatever the simulator said. And I felt like we had lost our intuition. So I went and I spoke to the this person who, who had hired me and she, um, I spoke to her about this and she's like, yeah, you know, there seems to be an ebb and flow as architecture teams create tools and collateral that help them make decisions. They start to rely on them more instead of relying on their gut. And if they don't have that tool, then they rely more on their gut and less on their poorly created tool. The paralysis comes in either side of that spectrum. Right. You're either paralyzed by only using your intuition or paralyzed by only using the tool that you have. And the real thing to do, we discovered, is to to use both effectively, strike a balance, and not get stuck in one corner or the other. So, so I guess the broad sort of point this is trying to address is, is computer architecture a science or an art? And you, you're saying it's somewhere in between. I would say use the data to augment your intuition, never to replace it. We've had a few things where it's like, well, the data says X. I don't understand how that could be correct. One option is, well, that's what the data says. Let's move on. And the other is, no, I really need to go understand why that is the way it is. Once you have that understanding, the data may still be correct, or you may have discovered that, oh, well, that's the data under these conditions, which don't happen to be the conditions you expected, right? And we're seeing this a lot with Siren post-silicon performance configuration tuning, right? That, oh, this knob had no effect, it changed some transistor somewhere. The knob was put in for a reason. It must have had some change. Just because the workload you were running didn't show it. Well, okay, now you can say no workload will see a change, or you can kind of say, hold on, I need to go write a micro so that I can go like, oh, I now observed a change in the behavior of the processor because of that switch, yay follow it from there out to the app and why didn't the app see the change? So I, I'm, I'm much more about tools for turning data into intuition and understanding. I think there's a spiral upward and that spiral is, is built upon this foundation of having good tools and having good intuition. And as as you get better tools, you gain more intuition on things that you didn't have intuition on before. And that helps you create more tools. Yes. Right? You, you, can, you can create an environment where that is the case. Yeah. Or you can just say, no, it said five. And, and uh, run away from that kind of organization. Right. And if you do that, you've effectively stopped learning. Right. And, and your spiral has now started going downwards. So we've spoken a little bit about tools and collateral and how those sort of help enable us to do the things that we do. Building a microprocessor and a CPU is an extremely complicated endeavor. How do we sort of think about going about doing such a complicated thing? So what kind of collateral do we need? How do we build the tools? How do we organize people to allow them to do this complicated thing? 
I thank God I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's many ways to structure a team. I've seen in our past life and other places around the, the, our industry, there are large teams you put together to create a new architecture. There are small teams that they've put together to do an architecture. I've seen all of these examples fail. <laughs> and I've seen all of them succeed. And so there's there's no one way to build a new mic architecture. I think the pieces that matter are how the team works together, if they're cohesive as a team and are able to to communicate effectively and not stomp on each other. If you've been able to create a trust between your team members where you can carve up different parts of the design or the responsibilities and trust one another to get that part done. So having an environment that's conducive, ideas flow freely, you can sort of uh, talk to one another. Yeah. Do you think that there's an optimal size for a team? Is there such a thing, thing as a team that's too large? Yes. Uh, the optimal size of a team is the largest number of people you can get together who execute with a common purpose. And in your As, experience, how large has that been? I would say that the Ampere architecture team has not reached that limit. I think that is partly hiring decisions and partly the focus of Ampere on a particular market. As soon as you add the one person who works at cross purposes to one other person in the team, you're dead. All right. And if that's, oh, somebody from the mobile team joined the server team because the mobile team said, we need somebody in the server team to go advocate for smaller address spaces, right? All of a sudden, the server team just got too big. And it's like, well, but that's not a size thing. That's more of a politics kind of thing. Like, yeah, but that was the event that meant that team was doomed. So what you're getting to is that Renee has established a vision for the company. And the vision is that we have one product. So we're building server CPUs for the cloud. And that's it. We're not making drones. We're not selling crypto. There's no NFTs. None of that is distracting us from our one singular goal. And everybody at the company is working on that one goal. So that means architectures, architecture team is also just working on that one goal with our product, our product roadmap. So because we're not distracted, we don't have this problem of politics uh, against uh, the common I, goal. I would say it's, it's not a distraction. It's, um, it's that we're, we, we are able to maintain alignment with other teams, right? So to create the processor is you need an architecture team that talks to microarchitects, that talks to design, that talks to the people who, right, and then validation, and then somebody's got to do the packaging and the boards and, right, the, the mechanical engineers bending metal to make rack things, right? Because there's only one thing. If architecture suddenly says, oh, let's go make everything triangular, 
Well, the mechanical engineers will come back to us a few minutes later, smack us upside the head, and rather than us saying, I hate you because you don't agree with me, we can go, oh, yeah, you're probably right, that was a bad idea, and we all get back in line and off we go. But if we were busy in a market where triangular processors were like really hot and square ones and maybe some round ones, now it's like, I want to do triangles. And eventually you're going to end up with somebody in the architecture team who wants to do circles, right? And it's like, yeah. So I think it's, even if we diverge, the overwhelming tendency is to have things realign. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about leadership uh, since we're on the topic of teams and team sizes. To set a little bit of context here, you have in the past led pretty large teams of uh, around 200 people. Uh, did you have maybe some kind of a leadership philosophy? How did you, did you ever want to be a leader? I guess maybe we could start there. Or um, So to be specific, I managed a team of about 150. I tried to lead them. <laughs> There is a huge difference between leading and managing. Did I ever want to lead? Yes, there was a brief moment where I wanted to lead because my manager at the time was neither managing nor leading. And the team size was such that there were no two people aligned on anything. So that's a pretty awful environment to live in. And I said, geez, my life has to be worth more than going in and showing up and having everything I do either be beating someone down or getting beaten down by somebody. So leadership is really about providing a purpose for the group, not necessarily for individuals, but for the group. You know, what is the purpose? Management is about execution. Leaders will provide a, an environment where you are prepared. Managers will demand a plan. They will then demand that you execute to the plan. They will kick and scream and cry and do everything they can to make you feel bad the moment you're off the plan. A leader will say, are we prepared for whatever comes our way? Great. Go forth and execute. Something went sideways, great. We are prepared for whatever that was, and off we go. We had no idea it was coming. We have no idea what it was, but we're smart. We figure it out and move forward. So I'm, I'm much more about preparedness, purpose, vision, than plans, key indicators, and execution. You could say it similar about many of the, the folks in architecture, in our team, we're mostly leaders. I don't know, what, what have you felt in your project here this summer? What I have felt is that good leadership almost comes from a place of not wanting to be one in the first place. <laughs> and uh, we don't really have managers per se in the sense that we don't have someone whose entire job it is to manage someone. So we have a bunch of engineers who are sort of working together, and then it only makes sense for some people 
to sort of manage everyone else to make sure things are going well. And to me, it almost has felt like that's the ideal way to do things because these people come from an engineering background that's so they're pretty familiar with the task at hand and how to execute it. So it's often the case that the planning and execution can go well because they sort of know what the execution involves and entails. And I thought, I've thought that that's a pretty useful thing uh, because we all sort of understand each other and that's pretty valuable. So I think an adequate leader will stay out of your way. A really good leader will inspire you. A really good leader will make you better than you were yesterday. Uh, sorry, a really good leader will help you to be better than you were yesterday because you chose to be better than you were yesterday. All right. So if you remember back to your first day, I mentioned getting things done. Didn't follow through on it because I'm a terrible manager. Um, <laughs> but, right, there are certain sets of skills that would have helped you manage yourself because, and you seem to be fine at it, so I never felt really a need to follow up on it. But, you know, there's an entire science behind managing of many various theories and philosophies, right? So the more you know about managing a project and yourself, the more effective you can be. The more you learn about other things, great. So, oh, I want breadth. I want depth. I want the ability to execute. Oh, look, I'm, you know, if I as a leader were helping you grow in those three dimensions, that's a good leader, right? A, a bad leader will simply say, I hope you get better over time. And you at least get done the stuff that we need to get done. But I think that anybody who is worth hiring is worth helping to grow. How much do you think that knowing how to manage yourself, and that was one of the one things that you brought up very early in my internship here, you said that you're going to learn how to be self-managed and that is how we do things here. How much do you think knowing how to manage yourself and sort of setting your own expectations and setting your own goals almost lends to knowing how to manage other people? Um, not at all. I would agree. <laughs> right. When I manage myself, which occasionally I attempt to do, I tend to do it at a level that... You know, it, it's it's got to be almost constant, but it's a background task, right? You know, hey, you don't write code for six hours straight. You get into a state of flow. You get a thing done. You take a five-minute break. You get back into the flow. But if you tried to stay in flow, right, six hours into it, you're not actually in flow, right? Or you're flowing, like, at the rate of amber or something. You don't want me managing you every 43 minutes, Right. Or asking you, you know, hey, should you really flex your fingers because your typing's slowing down? Or you just had three typos in the last four minutes. You know, what's going on? Right. Yeah. So there, there's much more. Right. Managing someone else is being good enough at managing yourself that you can then step out of yourself, 
observe yourself managing yourself and see you at that next level of abstraction so that you can look at somebody else and say, are they doing fine? Oh, wait, do I need to step in? And, and so on. Um, but again, you know, management is very much, did the plan get made? Are we executing the plan? Hopefully, as a manager of people, you lead them to manage themselves and manage them as little as possible would be my suggestion. Oh, sorry. And a, a very key thing about that is it's not your team. You are simply a shepherd. You are there. It's kind of like a Simon Sinek, if you know that right. He, he's very much servant leader because if you're accountable for the thing that the team is delivering, which as the manager you in theory are, well, you can't deliver it. If you could, they wouldn't have given you a team. You will never be successful thinking you own the result. The team owns it, right? Because you can't do it. Great. You better be helping that team be its best. So we've spoken about teams and team sizes. Uh, I was wondering what your experience has been like working in companies of different sizes and different scales. So I think it's fair to say Ampere is like a small to a moderate sized company when it comes to the number of engineers we have working for us. You've in the past worked at Intel, which obviously has a huge army of people working for them. Do you think the role of an engineer changes based on the size of a company in terms of, let's say, the amount of responsibility you have to take on, maybe even the type of leadership that you have to bring to the table? At, at a junior level, no. As you go up at a big company, absolutely, because you get closer to the business part of it. Right, your, your scope has broadened into you're now having the discussions about how many physical address bits do we need. And, oh, dear God, that can be really important because if you add one bit too many, you can't make a competitive cell phone part. If you have one bit too few, you can't make a competitive server part. Oh, geez, what do we do? Well, I'm a server architect. Oh, well, you're a... Right. So I, I think the role of a senior engineer at a large company where the company is trying to drive synergies because there's multiple product lines which are similar. Let me use those buzzwords. You're necessarily going to have to become more political in the sense of we have insufficient resources to do what we need. Therefore, we need to make hard decisions about how we spend the resources we have. I would imagine you could have a very large company with very siloed things, which is actually just a whole bunch of little companies under one corporate umbrella, there, that seems to be less of a problem, right? The top of the silo would have to fight for resources, presumably. But if you've got, hey, we've got one core that we're going to put into 23 different products going from drones to supercomputers, yeah, there's nothing but politics at the top of that stack. So you said that for a junior engineer, it doesn't make as much of a difference. In my experience, it does. And the difference that I have seen is that when we talk about levels of hierarchy, right, 
in larger companies from what I've seen, there's a lot of them. So for me as a junior guy, my points of contact and the engineers that I work most with in a big company happen to be people, let's say maybe with five or 10 years of experience in the industry. Whereas what I've seen here at Ampere is that you have all of these senior folks, like you can even say veterans of the industry that I can like have one-on-ones with and conversations with. And uh, that is an extremely useful thing for me from, of course, like a learning and technical point of view, but also from a point of view of just being comfortable, right? With the people around you. There's that degree of intimidation almost that's there. I'm like, oh my God, these guys have spent so many years here. Can I even like talk to them? But then when you do, you find out that they're such nice people and they're like here to help you and all of those things, which has been great and is a difference that I've definitely noticed. So, Thank you. I do think that is, that, that goes back to the, the aligned purpose because everybody is, is chasing the same thing. We can do that, right? You can be working on a tool with Jeff to go make decisions that go straight to the board, to Renee. There's not enough people to put all of that those layers of abstraction in there and so on. But I guess one of the things you're missing at a company like this is the breadth of understanding those harder trade-offs that would be imposed on you by a large company. Right? We can't make cell phone parts here because we make server chips. And all of our trade-offs are that if we suddenly wanted to get into that new exploding cell phone market that doesn't exist, but, you know, hey, there's a new market over here. It's completely different. Oh, in order to get into that, most companies say, how do I do that by funding the two engineering teams at 80% of what they need? And I'll make them figure out how to get to 100%. And the only way to do that is to slam the two together and start making compromises. So you're 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 losing out on understanding how to make those kinds of trade-offs you're not a worse person for missing out on that <laughs> so you brought up getting things done mm-hmm. you seem to me like someone who often maybe subscribes to certain frameworks if i can use that yeah. word getting things done is one of them i spoke around and asked questions in the office people who know you and they said Uncle Bob, oh, I love Uncle Bob. <laughs> was another, let's say, mode of thinking framework, basically the kind of philosophy around mm-hmm. writing clean code that he espouses. Why do you think that Uncle Bob's way of thinking about writing code is useful? It's not, it's not the specifics of a way of writing code. It's about minimizing technical debt and doing work that isn't essential now so that you minimize the work later. As I've been thinking about this lately, I think about it more in terms of the viscosity of information and the cost of acquiring information and the cost of using information. So as a specific example, I have my little tool that takes PMU data and sends it to Influx and then visualizes it in Grafana. That took me 
two weeks to figure out how to do that. I've now had a number of people come to me and say, hey, that was kind of cool. Can I do that too? And my answer has been, please wait. Because two nights ago, I finally got to, I can now help you inject data into a Grafana database in four lines of code. Four lines of code is a hell of a lot easier than what I had to figure out to make it work the first time. So what I've tried to do is, I learned something. If Mahesh ever wants to use what I've learned, he can use it with almost no cost, right? I've got a 10-line piece of C code and a header file, and if he types one build command line and runs it, he will have injected data in, and that helps him understand how to use everything I've done, right? So that's the cost of using knowledge. I learned it. I don't want him to have to learn the same thing because that's a waste of his time. I want information to be able to flow very cheaply. So if he decides he needs to know it, you know, what are the underpinnings to the thing? Then I want to make it so that he can do that at almost zero cost, right? He doesn't have to Google all these things. He just looks in the readme that I left behind that says, okay, hey, look, here's the next level down. And from there, here's some pointers. And maybe I'll go two levels down and leave some pointers. This is like textbook leadership skills. As you, you have something at the top shelf of your cabinet, you're able to reach up, grab it, and bring it down and distill it for other folks so that now they don't need to reach up all the way to go grab that. It's there for them. Right. I want it to be easy for him to use it without understanding it or with as little understanding as possible. If he needs to go deeper, I want that to be there. And then, right, just in general, information needs to be as inexpensive as possible. So when I go looking for the Siren MCU PMUs, where are they? It drives me nuts that I have to go find the one person who knows where the right version of it is. Because if I just go searching, I'll wander across something. Oh, that was last week's version. How do I know that? Right? Well, it has a date on it. Okay, but do I know that there's another one with a more current date? Right? So the Uncle Bob thing would be, hey, look, there's only one version of that thing, and everything points to the one version, and it's Nagi's job to make sure that the MCU documentation that all of those things point to is the right one. Oh, but Nagi doesn't have to do that today. Right. But everybody else who wants to know something about the MCU pays a price for that, for him not doing that. So the Uncle Bob thing is really, I think, much more broadly applicable. Yeah. So acquiring information versus using it. I want to ask, like, oftentimes, let's say, as an engineer, you'll write a tool and Essentially, the whole purpose of that tool is you're writing it for yourself because it's helping you do something. And then over time, it grows into something that a whole bunch of other people are using and you never set out for it to be that, right? And now maybe it's overfitted to your use case. So despite everyone else using it, it's not exactly ideal. So they have to spend some time maybe making a few changes here and there to make it fit their needs. So they are expanding some energy, right? 
to change it to make it work for them. Whereas maybe if you had set out with the mindset that this is going to be something that's going to grow, you might have approached it in a different way and saved everyone else trouble. But you often don't know that something's going to grow to that size. So do you always approach each new tool that you build and each new project that you undertake with the vision that maybe one day this will grow and I have to like be aware of that when I'm writing it from scratch? So I always throw code at the compiler until I get what I need. And then I look at it and say, okay, what's the right way to do this? Or what is a way to redo this such that in the future I can change it more easily, others can adapt it more easily, right? And Uncle Bob comes out and says that in episode 30-something, I think, right? That he's like, hey, you know, somebody commented about like, dear God, how do you, you can't possibly write code like this. And he's like, no, you're looking at the 49th time I've done this. Right. But I started doing it this way and da, 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 da. And then by the 47th time, I was like, oh, wait, I should just be doing it this way. Right. So the Influx Grafana PMU reading thing that I started with is just 3,000 lines of C code and it's ugly. Right. And then I was like, oh, wait, this needs to be multi threaded. Okay. Now it's 3,200 lines of code. And the number of people who can look at it and figure out what's going on has dropped from one to zero. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't even understand my own code. Okay, I better go in and fix that because you should be able to understand your own code, right? And then it's like, oh, wait, I wish I could do this. Oh, that would be expensive. Okay, go fix it and so on. So the thing I was talking about with now I've got the writing to influx down to four lines. Great. I just pulled a thousand lines out of my 3000 line other thing. And that makes that tool better. Right. So I think you, you make it better or you make it better in a specific way when you have to, but you're always trying to make it better because you're going to have to someday. Do you think part of that is guided by the fact that your tool exists because of an engineering problem. And if you can't foresee where that problem will arise again or how it will scale up to be a bigger problem, but you can just wait for that when it comes. Meanwhile, your tool is sitting there in Git. Yeah. Right. Um, you don't have to solve future problems. Right. So, you know, I, I think of tools as lenses. They're things that help you perceive things that you couldn't perceive before you wrote the tool. Once you have the perception, you should gain intuition or understanding or something like that. Okay, so uh, these microphones are lenses. Your glasses are lenses. They serve two different purposes at an abstract level, at least in my silly head. They're doing the same thing, right? They're... They're enhancing something. So I've written a tool that says, oh, I want to enhance my ability to get data out of the silicon into some form that I can work with from there. And so part of that tool is, you know, oh, yeah, I, I read the counter, I throw it out this HTTP post, and now it's in a database. Life is good. 
understanding the thing at an abstract level allows you to not freak out about is it doing Panthera or post silicon? It's like, yeah, it's it's a this. Go change ten lines of code, mm-hmm. and then you know you you throw another function call in yeah. if if you need to. So incremental changes when the need arises. Yeah, right. Bifocals. It's an incremental change. Do you think that sometimes though, because we talk about S curves. And maybe if you started out building something in a particular fashion, you'll reach a point of diminishing returns. Sometimes it just makes sense to throw the whole thing out and start from scratch because it's a new S-curve. And maybe the point of diminishing returns is like not where the previous one was, right? How often do you throw things out to start from scratch? And when do you decide to do that? Uh, usually I would do it when I believe the cost of a new thing is less than the cost of making the existing thing do it. Or the purpose of the new thing is at cross purposes to the old thing. If you've ever looked in one of my directories on one of the lab machines, right? It's like, he's got 23 things named Siren Perf something, right? Now, what the hell is this? And and a lot of that is, oh, uh, I tried it. I don't really like that one. Okay, I'll try it. Uh, Okay, right. So I'll build six tools and then go, ah, this one feels good. And I'll go with that. Or, Or I may do six of them and go, you know, it's easier to add 20 lines to the old thing. But what I don't like is a thing doing two fundamentally different things, at least a, a complex tool, right? So at, at some level, you get down to reading registers and writing registers. Okay, and, and that gets libraryified pretty quickly, right? But um, so I've got a tool which reads and writes registers for the purpose of getting PMU data out. I have another tool that reads and writes registers in order to configure the silicon to run performance studies based on how I just set it up using the thing that reads and writes registers. Right. Why aren't those one tool? Uh, Because one is reading and writing data to blast it to a Grafana thing or to an influx thing, and the other one is just configuring a system. I don't really want to go to Mahesh and say, hey, Mahesh, here's the new widget tool. If you do widget tool dash K space minus three something something, it'll capture PMU data. And if you do something, right, that turns into like VI and Emacs. And there's another guy who is now at Apple, who pointed out a guy who used to be at Bell Labs, who is like no modes. Um, if you Google no modes, there's a website that's like nomodes.com. But it's this idea of, I shouldn't have to have a model of the tool in my head to use the tool, right? If you know all the VI code sequences, you can do amazing things. Yeah, or I can just click the frickin' mouse and drag. 
oh, no, 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 there's a great meta something, something that automatically highlights from where you are three words. And if you do a shift on that, it goes three sentences. I'm like, I don't need this shit in my head, right? What I want to do is click and drag because that lets me focus on the thing I'm trying to do and it go right the cost of information. Oh, well, you'll be a better editor in Emacs the more of these things you know. Or you can just use a GUI and you're good from the first, right? Um, Not a big Spoon Vim fan, I take it. <laughs> there's a tool that you made. Uh, you know, we have our own lab and there's some machines in the lab and you had written a tool to figure out which machines are alive. I think it was called IP map. Oh yeah. And it's cool. It, it creates this little graphical thing. It pings each one. And at, after every 10, it just prints out. These are the ones that are alive. These are the ones that are not alive. And I'm like, Oh, that's really cool, but it's kind of slow. So I went, I paralyzed each line. And so now you can do 10 pings at a time and you know, got it done. I handed it back to yeah. you. And it was, a, it was really cool. You, you had this response. You're like, yeah, I don't want to be an asshole, but like, how come you just didn't paralyze all 255? <laughs> and then my response is like, well, then I would have to change all of other parts of your little GUI, right? And, and so it's like, here's the thing. Like, I made it incrementally better. I didn't rewrite the whole thing, but I did make it 10x faster. I didn't make it 250 times faster. Yeah. But yeah. I needed 10x His, his version is way better. And right, so it, it wouldn't be that hard to make it 256 way better. But it would take two hours. Yeah, it would take more effort right. to do that. Then I'm like, oh, the reason why I did that was I was waiting too long for it to finish. And I went and I fixed it. But I made it fast enough where I don't care now that it takes seven seconds as opposed to 70 seconds. So uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that is not related to your professional life. One of the things that I found really fascinating was that you've participated and competed in endurance events and sports events even. I'm curious about the ultra marathon that you participated in. It's called Marathon de Sable. Could you maybe describe what it is and why you decided to take part in such a tough uh, endurance event? Explain yeah. why a man would... Why would a man go through it? Lots of women do it too. <laughs> Why would person? <laughs> um, so, uh, how did I get into it? Well, sorry. Uh, first question was, what is it? So, that one is it's in Morocco and it's a seven day stage race. So, kind of like the Tour de France of you you don't just get to the finish line. There's stages, and so usually the first three days are around twenty miles each, and then the third and fourth days yeah are uh, a 50 mile stage and then a marathon and then a half marathon usually one day is entirely in the dunes so it's 20 miles of running up and down sand dunes which is a lot of fun you have to carry everything but water so you start off with seven days of food Everybody likes to say, oh, a signal flare. Why on earth do you need one of those? Ends up people need them. Um, but seven days of food, a sleeping bag, and whatever the hell else you want to survive. And then a, a small kit that includes a snake bite thing, 
a flare, a signaling mirror, a knife, and the first year I did it, that all amounted to like 26 pounds. And the last time I did it, I started at 19 and a half and then threw in like a bag of Cheetos and a bag of gummy bears and got to 20. So you'll learn a lot, right? That's what it is in a nutshell. Why did I sign up for it? I used to do a Grand Canyon rim-to-rim-to-rim hike with a bunch of people from Intel, Arizona. And we were all sitting around one day, halfway through the canyon, and I'm like, I wonder what the hardest thing is. Great, so you get back to work and you're bored, so you Google, like, hardest foot race. And fairly invariably, the two that come up are the Marathon de Sable, and something called Badwater, which is from the bottom of Death Valley to the top of Mount Whitney, and that's 135 miles in a shot, uh, which is the lowest point in the U.S. to the highest point in the 48 states, across 135 miles. It's hard to get into Badwater. At the time, it was really easy to get into this other thing, and I was like, hell, let's go for it. So I signed up. Anyway, so, yeah, that's how I signed up for it, and uh, it was fun. (laughs) But I imagine it is pretty physically grueling and mentally as well, so how do you maybe prepare yourself for something like that? And you cannot just sign up for it and then just show up. I imagine there's a lot of, like, training that goes in. A fair number of British people do just show up, and they're a lot of fun to run past and go like, thank God I'm not that stupid. Yeah, so preparing is a big part of it. You don't want that 50-mile day to be the first time you've gone 50 miles. Right, it's really the difference between prepared and planned. You can plan anything you want. It ain't what's going to happen. Right, something will go sideways on you, and that's where it gets fun. Uh, air quotes Um, let's see the first time I did it I broke my toe next to my big toe on the second day and spent the rest of the week walking with a bit of a limp and that sucked and it, it was I felt really bad until there was some guy who was 10 years older than me who had a I guess it was a fractured femur And he was hobbling along, sometimes ahead of me, sometimes behind me. And they ended up pulling him after the 50-mile day. But a broken toe is really nothing compared to a broken leg. Right, but it's sort of like, oh, I'd been planning on covering these distances in two hours and 40 minutes because that's what I could do 20 miles in. And the first day was three hours 20. Oh, my God, what's going to happen tomorrow, right? And it's like... Calm down. So the second time I did it, instead of being windy at night and still during the day, it was windy during the day and still at night, which basically was like running on Venus instead of Mars or something. It was just like, what the hell is going on here? So that was totally screwy. And the third year I did it, it rained. And so just surviving until the race started was an endeavor and then 
instead of running on sand, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I stepped in something and I'm up to my thigh in sandy something or other and my shoe is off and it's two and a half feet down in this hole and people are running by me laughing at me and I'm going, oh crap, do I do the next three days uh, with one shoe or do I figure out how to go get my shoe out? Everything goes sideways. Your mind goes sideways. Your nutrition goes sideways. Yeah. Um, but that's that's kind of the fun thing of what are you going to do about it? So why did you decide to not quit when things went sideways? It was entirely your choice. You could have pulled out at any point during the race. I, I quit the second time. Uh, the second time was hell. Um, and from that one, I would never quit that race again because the stage nature of it makes it, you just got to get to the end of the day. And quite honestly, anyone can drag their butt 20 miles most days. But other races that I have quit, I've learned to go into it with a pre-decision of, I will not quit until. And my usual metric is, I will not quit until there's blood at the top of my sock. <laughs> and the blood can either be going up from my feet or down from other places. But when the top of my sock gets bloody, I've had enough. So, you know, 100 miles is a long enough way that you can have some great discussions with people because you're not like running at, you know, you're not saying bolt out there uh, and you can't talk. So, like, you know, we're jogging along at four and a half miles an hour and somebody be like, oh, my God, I did this one race and I was barfing from 45 to 75 miles. And it, right. And it's like, you know. You think, okay, so there's these people who are like, oh, I pulled out of a marathon because I had a cramp for 20 yards. And here's somebody who did 30 miles barfing the whole way. And then it's like, oh, and then finally everything equaled out. And the last part was great because of, you know. Um, so, yeah. Were there any large stretches of the race which you did like with no runners around you. And I'm just curious, like where does your mind go when you just have like three, four hours of like running in front of you and you have absolutely nothing to keep yourself busy with? And I imagine the scenery is also the same. So you can't even keep yourself entertained with the novelty of the whole landscape. So what do you think about? Um, that is an awesome question because that is one of the hardest parts of or you will put more energy into what you're thinking about than the running by far somewhere i have some great photos of it's like a, a totally martian view of there's this straight line from horizon to horizon in front of and behind me and there's people on the entire thing and you can see four miles in both directions but there's somebody who's fast enough, they're four miles ahead, and somebody's slow enough, they're four. And they're just like, holy crap. For the long stage, when it gets dark, they make you wear glow things. So you can always see like, oh, there's somebody over there. And they may be two miles away, but there's somebody out there. Um, and I mentioned the flares, which is if something goes really sideways, set off a flare, they have at least one helicopter where they'll see the flare, and somebody will be there in like four minutes. 
it's really impressive to see it happen. Um, <laughs> but um, right. I've seen it happen. <laughs> Great stories around getting hit by flares and stuff like that. But um, yeah, they've got like crazy French stunt pilots doing the piloting because it's like, well, if the winds are high, we're going to get there in four minutes because you set off your flare. So we're going to get there. The worst one was a race in the Tetons where there were only 60 people in the race and the course was 25 miles long. And so uh, you get to, I haven't seen anyone in five hours, but I've seen three moose. (laughs) And I know I don't want to see moose (laughs) because moose don't like people. Right. And it's sort of like, you know, you're you're in a forest. You're down in this forest, and you're kind of like going. It's getting dark because they always start early in the morning, and unless you're superhuman, you're going all night long and into the next day. But the worst part is like the first half of night because it's oh shit, where's the snakes? Where's the wolves? Where's the bears? Where's the and it's like oh we haven't seen a bear in two weeks. Well, shit, statistics says I'm going to see six bears because that's what statistics means, right? And he's like, and the, the freaking moose that's like nine <laughs> feet tall, and uh, right? And I know there's a snake around here somewhere, right? And so your mind's kind of like going, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to, something is going to kill me. And like, no, you're really stinky, you smell like a human, you're, you know, you're sucking air like crazy. Every animal is taken off because... It's just like you're offensive, but your brain is like calories after calories of like fear. And yeah, that's, that, that's the hard part. I had one where I was really stupid and was like, oh, I'm almost to the checkpoint for the, the Sahara thing. They give you water bottles along the way. Um, So it's sort of like a video game, you know, it's like, oh good. I got to the level of Donkey Kong here, have another one. And I was like, oh, that's it. And I was like, oh, no, it's some Bedouins living in their house. Shit, that wasn't my water break. And then somebody comes running by me, and she's got a GPS watch. And I'm like, we're kind of close, right? She looked at it. "Uh, Probably not. Okay, but we're kind of close, right? And so I made a decision to not eat because I was like, well, I'm going to be there in five minutes anyway. Well, eating's kind of important, right? Because that's where you get your energy from and blah, blah, blah. So like an hour and a half later, I finally rolled into the place that I was expecting an hour and 25 minutes earlier. And I was like, okay, my stomach feels like it's about to explode, blah, blah, blah. I'm ready to die. What do you do? Right. Oh, and it's getting really cold because it's the desert. So, right, it's gone from... 100 degrees, and now it's 40 degrees. And it's like, great. You pull out your sleeping bag, and you keep trudging. And eventually you barf. And you're like, oh, my <laughs> God. Right. Or, yeah, it, it helps to either be like, quitting won't help, or this is, th- this is my limit. <laughs> so despite knowing how miserable and difficult these things can get, why did you attempt them multiple times? What made you keep going back to it? So I finished the first year, and that felt like a great accomplishment. 
but um, yeah, why did I keep going back? The Morocco one is like the best spring break you'll ever have if you're prepared, right? Because it's like, hey, I could have been working 16 hours today. Or what I did was I went out and I met some really awesome people because you're all jacked up on endorphins, right? Because you've been running for the last three years straight. And we're going to hang around under a shady thing they call a tent. We're going to get up. We're going to go run for a couple hours. And then we're going to go hang out under the shady thing and do it again the next day. And you kind of watch your backpack go from this thing you have to carry around to like, oh my God, it's empty. And all I have is an empty water bottle and a knife. Hey, who wants to go run for another week? Right. <laughs> Cause it's like, as long as there's somebody out there with water, yeah, we're totally good. It's like when you're done, you're exhausted and not in the sense of I'm tired. I don't want to go on, but it's all out the stress is gone you know whatever you were carrying mentally is gone because you had that fight right it may come back but when you're done it's like you're done ultras are great because they're usually like 30 hours 36 hours when you're done you go sleep for a long long time you don't have somebody come up and say like hey were you going to get to mowing the lawn this afternoon Right, which you can get with a marathon because, like, hey, you're done by noon. You go home and your wife's like, great, here's your kids. Pay attention to them. And you're like, oh, I'm kind of tired. Right, an Ironman, you have to be done by midnight, I think. So it's like you wake up and you're like, oh, crap, what am I going to do with my Sunday? And Ultra's just like, it's the weekend. <laughs> and the Morocco thing's even better because literally you're like, you're standing there at the end and you're like, I got a sleeping bag, an empty water bottle, and a knife totally good with that and then you like get on a plane and you get home and it's like oh i have a car too with insurance <laughs> and a car payment and then you go to your house and you're like, oh yeah i have a mortgage which means i, I probably ought to go to work so i can keep my job so i can write and it, as, as that all comes back in the 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 people are like hey you just finished something pretty awesome don't make any big decisions for the next month <laughs> yeah so do you think that perspective of knowing that maybe I don't really need all of these things has been a useful thing for you to know. And maybe are there any other lessons that you've taken away from this experience that you thought were valuable? Honestly, my preparedness thing came from that uh, much more than anything at work, right? Because work is always go build a plan. And the ultra stuff is plans are for suckers, right? That you can plan anything you want, but one, you know, you just land wrong with your foot or like, oh, your knee wasn't quite where it was. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, my calf hurts. Or one morning I was running to work and the strap broke on my backpack. I'm like, oh, is that the end of my, you know, what do I do about that? Because that could easily happen out there. Um, just the, the mindset of stuff goes wrong. That's part of it. Do I have the, or am I the kind of person who just like 
yep, something went wrong. Recover and go. I think that's a lot of it. Um, I, I would say it probably, uh, I, I don't know that I would be divorced without it, but having it and going into marriage with it is sort of like, oh, this is my expectation of what marriage is like. Not exactly aligned with my wife's, but it's like, oh, other people have expectations. You know, it doesn't mean we can't change our expectations and move forward together. So, yeah. You were also a part of the 1991 University of Michigan football team, which, if I'm not mistaken, made it to the Rose Bowl. Not a lot of people can say that they've participated in an event of that scale, especially when we're talking about people in our domain, right? So <laughs> what was that experience like? To be clear, I was not suited up at the Rose Bowl because the team is too big for certain things. But uh, I, I have a Rose Bowl ring. I have a Big Ten championship ring. So some of that stuff. Michigan Stadium was bigger than the Rose Bowl at that point. For a freshman... The experience is really standing in the tunnel, getting ready to run out. You have to run 40 yards across the field, and you're just thinking, don't trip, don't trip, don't trip, <laughs> don't trip, uh, pretty much. And then you get to the other side, and then you're like, don't do anything stupid, don't do anything stupid, don't do right. And I'm sure if you're like a star athlete as a freshman, you're sort of like, get me on the field so I can go kick somebody's ass. Mostly it was like, there's 110,000 people here, stage fright-ish, right? Uh, kind of enjoying it, but the thing I remember most, well, I remember a couple things most, but one of the observations I had was I think we were number, we were ranked third in the nation, and we were playing number one in the nation, Florida State numbers may be a little bit off and we're standing around at practice on like tuesday and we're all thinking holy shit if we are the third best team in america how bad is the 10th because we <laughs> suck <laughs> right and it ends up that florida state was higher ranked than us for a good reason yeah you know for that one i i Left the team because I got injured, but I that's another thing that I frequently look back on and say, if I had taken advantage of the opportunity, where would I or what would that have been like? And that kind of goes back to the hey, why did I start managing a team, a team of developers? Right, because you can kind of say, well, maybe I would have been good enough to start or, or you know, get regular playing time. Oh, but I didn't believe in myself. Oh, well, crap. What's life like if you do believe in yourself? Oh, well, you know, here's an advantage. I don't, I, I, I don't want that opportunity, but what if, right? So I've tried to take that and look at it much more like, keeping doors open kind of thing. Hey, there's an opportunity. Okay. You know, I would say there is an opportunity in the architecture team for a active leader to step up and kind of help the team gel into an uh, into a real team instead of 
a collection of uh, individuals headed in the same direction. I've done that. I kind of came to Ampere to get away from that. <laughs> so I try to say, okay, well, in that case, I think I want to leave that door closed. But I'm definitely much more in tune with trying to keep opportunities available. So those those are all learnings coming from your Rose Bowl year. Like you're you're, you're drawing a lot of this from from the experience you had being on a high performing team. Well, so yeah, I mean that's an interesting thing. Is did you know Mike McNulty? Okay. He was like the the Big Ten schools recruiter for Intel. Did you know Desmond Howard? Yeah. Okay. See, I, I want to just get that on audio. First, um, so. <laughs> uh, Something like 63 guys that were on the team when I was on the team signed pro contracts. Wow. Um, which was a, a pretty large number at the time. But the year I got hurt, which would have been 92, I think, we had the largest offensive line in football. Not college football. <laughs> football. <laughs> Elvis Gerbeck. Todd yeah. Collins, you may have heard of them. Yeah. Desmond Howard. Yeah, that those those guys, right? So there's like, oh, you see a guy on TV and you're like, yeah, I know that guy. I know what that guy looks like naked. <laughs> <laughs> I've showered with that guy. You know, like, <laughs> not in a creepy way, but um, yeah, so. What was your position? Inside linebacker. Okay. So. Uh, you can be kind of slow. You can be kind of dumb. You just, like, hit stuff. It's kind of like center field, right? Middle linebacker. You're, you're kind of floating around. You can, you can rush or you can drop back. Yeah, pretty much if something comes through the offensive line, you try to hit it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big responsibility. In you're theory. in the middle, right? Yeah. <laughs> in theory, you're supposed to be in charge of things. Yeah. So. Cool. Um, but I guess the, the thing I was going to say, uh, so my interview for Intel was very quick because, of, you know, it was back in the 90s when I was like, oh, dear God, you know how to spell your name here, apply. But he's like, can you give me an example of a team activity you've done? <laughs> and I was like, well, I spend like six days a week playing football on a team. And he's like, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I'm at a team. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, like a team of engineers. Okay. Yeah, a, a lot of the way I think about teams is based off of that. Right. So on a football team, as a, uh, in any specific position, if you're a defensive back, you are not a defensive lineman. That is not your responsibility, but neither is the outside linebacker your responsibility. You're a defensive back. You need to be aware of what the outside linebacker's responsibilities and job are, not because you need to tell them how to do their job, but you need to help them when they screw up. Yeah. Because somebody's got to cover, right? It, it, it's really a multi-tiered, how do I help everybody else? Unless 
the offense is coming after me, in which case I better be doing my job, but I expect 10 other guys to be helping me or doing everything they can to be helping me. So not everybody has to know everything, right? Which goes back to the information thing of, hey, as I learn PMUs, I don't want you to have to know how to go fetch a PMU. I want to make that super easy for you. Yeah. I want you to know there's PMUs in case you need them, right? Stuff like that. You know, the head coach almost never talks to a player because, well, they have position coaches that are, you know, they've got a defensive coordinator who has position coaches and so on. Great. What's the head coach do? Well, they don't say, you know, oh, did you use the right format, right? They provide a, a vision and a purpose and a whatever. Um, they make sure the team is a team, not a collection of individuals, things like that, right? Oh, hey, you're being an individual. Let me show you how the team doesn't need you because an individual isn't watching the other 10 guys saying, oh, crap, you need my help. I better be helping you. Yeah, that, and especially when you're highly functioning at that level, if you think about it at all and bring it to any other organization, you're almost always going to be like, yeah, we could do better. Yeah. Yeah. Which, oh, yep. and hopefully you don't feel like I'm trying to create a football team. It's just more of like a, you know, we could be achieving more. So you mentioned believing in yourself. Do you maybe have any other kind of advice for people who are, young in their career in the industry, just starting out, or maybe even, let's say, five or 10 years in the industry, right, on how to keep going, especially maybe sometimes when the passion runs out. How do you keep yourself interested, curious, motivated through like a long 20, 30-year year career? So introspection is critical. I'm not motivated. Why not? It's not his job to tell you why you're not motivated, right? Only you can solve that problem. Going to the open space and learning are the, the two key things. Somewhere, and it's probably 10 years ago, I saw like learning is the new literacy. It's not your ability to know something. It's your ability to learn it, forget it, and relearn it. Right, so something you know today will not be true tomorrow. Okay, so, um, right, oh, I'm the Chai E-Spec master. That's an awesome job to have until the F-Spec comes out. And if you try and say, no, 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 we can't go to F, E is where it's at, E's better, right? It's like, the world will pass you by. So you've got to be learning something new all the time. It doesn't help to learn the thing he knows. Go learn something different. At least for me, the ability to put things into buckets of abstraction helps a lot with that. I, I know as little as I possibly can because somebody invented Google along the way. I can go... I can go find almost anything I need quickly. The ability to think about more things is really the important thing, I guess. 
for me, I think about, I, I put that in that lenses kind of thing, right? Of as an IP company, it's not so much about building a thing as can I ask and answer better questions than my competitors? Right. So if we're busy trying to figure out how to answer how big should that buffer be and the entire company is focused on that one question, then we're not really understanding the difference between cloud native and cloud not native or the difference between graph workloads and crypto workloads. It's a workload. It's a category of workloads. Great. I need, I need my lenses to understand each one. But the important thing is I need tools to understand so that I can guide designs to be better. That's the critical mindset, not each individual answer. Because your goal is to have more answers faster, better questions, better answers. Right. Going back to the knowledge thing, if it takes me 45 minutes to go find the document, that was 45 minutes I wasn't figuring out a better question to answer. Right. I think Rene, in, in, in saying we're going to do a cloud-native processor, I have no idea what she was thinking. Right. It, it was the architecture face-to-face when Wittick pointed out this is what cloud-native means for us. First time I'd heard it, I was like, Oh, now that really helps me think about the questions I want to ask and answer. Otherwise, I thought we were building a processor that was pretty much a server that we put a buzzword on. Oh, no, we're going this way. Okay. So what does that mean? I've seen a couple articles about, like, London can't build new houses in some neighborhood because of servers. Right, so uh, somewhere there's a limit to the amount of power they can get into a geography. And servers are using it all. I suspect that's going to become more common. But it's also going to vilify server farms. Hey, people need this power for whatever. What the hell is, you know, these computers are taking it all up. So... That's a new thing. What does that mean for us? How how is that an advantage? Or you know, how how do you ask? How how do you take that and start asking questions that lead to better products? Where knowing this isn't a oh no we're in trouble. It's a I have an opportunity to do better in the future because I have a better awareness of what's going on. All right, we're near the end of our time, so I want to thank Yash Kakulo and Michael Julier here for joining us today in, in the studios. I just want to personally say how jazzed and grateful I am to share this experience with the both of you. A lot of people don't know that when we started Ampere Studios and the Ampere Amplified podcast, we never really thought it would get past like five episodes. And so this is a real treat when we're pushing 25, 30 episodes now and having you come on board and learning and sharing and growing here with us. I really value communications and the ability to share our stories out with the rest of the world. And I know it's going to be very valuable for other people 
who are in grad school who hear these things like how you did and they will come on board to help help us be interns next year. So thank you both for that. See you next time. Thank <laughs> you.